Welcome to the On The Road live show this morning. I'm John Marucci, creator of the On The Road YouTube channel that provides RV-specific videos to help enhance your travel experience. Now, the purpose of the On The Road live show is to provide a place to interact in community, get questions answered, and stay current on RV news, trends, and resources. Of course, anyone, no matter the experience level, is welcome to participate and ask questions or interact. It's good to have you on the show today and nice to connect with each of you live. Feel free to put in the chat what location you're logging in from. Also, to ask a question, just put the word QUESTION in all caps in front of your comments so we can see it. On today's show, we're going to focus primarily on trip planning after we do quite a bit of interesting RV news. So, thank you for joining the, the call today. So, let's go on and start on the question. You know, the question segment of the show is about answering questions or looking at comments about a specific relevant topic. These are usually gleaned from viewers' follow-up questions or comments from various videos. As we go along, if the discussion spurns a question, just ask away in the chat. So here we go. C. Brown asks on the RPOD winterization video, since you apparently live in Michigan, what do you do about winterizing after you travel south during the winter? I assume it will be freezing when you get home, say in January, February, March, so you need to winterize along the way home, right? Are, also, are you dewinterizing in the cold before you leave? Doesn't that create freeze problems? Trying to understand so perhaps we can travel during the winter from Ohio. So that's a really good question. You know, I usually travel south and dewinterize once I'm in a, once I'm in a climate where will not go below freezing, usually like Tennessee or Georgia. On the way back, it's generally later in the winter and often I can time the return so I have a day or two to winterize when I reach home. I do, however, carry a couple gallons of RV antifreeze and my small air compressor with us going back north in case we do have to winterize along the way. Uh, the next question comes from T TBP615, and it's part of the winterization for beginners video that we just put up this last month. Just want to follow up, and this is actually an interesting comment. I did my travel trailer this weekend using your guide, and it worked like a charm. I threw a small bucket under my low point drain and kept captured the antifreeze to use in my sink drains. I had an extra outdoor kitchen sink. Use less than two gallons. Thanks again for making such a thorough how-to. And this is a great tip on the bucket to catch the antifreeze under the low point drain. If you remember the video, what happens is you run antifreeze through the system and you have to open your low point drain. So if you're doing this by yourself, it makes it kind of tough that you don't waste any. So this is a good tip to remember that if you're doing this by yourself, uh, winterizing, and you have the low point drains open, you're running antifreeze through, just put a bucket under there to catch it. You just gotta make sure that you don't dilute the antifreeze too much with water in there. Next question comes from Brent, and this is on the dump stations video basics question. A great video on a topic that makes all newbies like myself nervous the first time. So several questions I didn't see. One, how do you store your sewer and flush hose? I can imagine this getting a bit messy with it draining once it's finished. And two, I've heard from other experienced R-Potters that they avoid putting wipes into tank in use and dispose in a separate bag due to clogging. Any info on that? So this is my response to Brent. First of all, you know, if I just have one uh, dump hose, what I do is I use a five gallon bucket with a lid and I just simply store it in the back of my uh, pickup truck in the bed there and I just have a cover on that five gallon bucket. It, it folds up nicely in there, so it's no problem. I can clean it later more thoroughly when I get home. The second question, basically, I use an RV specific toilet paper, which is important, and I use Happy Campers. 
and that breaks down the material in the black holding tank pretty well. So I really haven't had the issue that many have where it's clogging up the tank much. Uh, the readings on my tank monitor may be off at times, which most people's are, but usually it resets when I do a thorough flush. I think those three things are the things to remember. First of all, use um, RV-specific RV uh, toilet paper. Use something like Happy Campers that breaks it down when it's not in use. And then do a good flush whenever you have a chance. Uh, the next question comes from Kathy, and it was on the recent weight distribution video that we put out. If using a weight distribution hitch, do you also have to use an anti-sway bar? That's a very good question. So here's my response to Kathy. It depends on the weight distribution hitch. Some, like my Blue Ox hitch, do have sway control built in. So you don't need a sway bar at all. I think the E2 uh, weight distribution hitch is very similar as well. I used that at one point with my 171. But you need to check on the brand. So depending on the weight distribution hitch that you use, some do have sway control and others may not. And if you don't have sway control, you may need to use um, a actual sway bar, anti-sway bar. We have another question, this one from Rick, on, also on the weight distribution hitch video. I'm curious about backing up with a weight distribution hitch. Can you do it with any weight distribution hitch or only certain types and models? And I replied to Rick in this way. You know, mo most weight distribution hitches you can back up with. Some folks, as mentioned above in the prior uh, question, only use a sway bar, an anti-sway bar, and those usually do have to be detached before backing up, but most weight distribution hitches you can back up fine, meaning you don't have to unhook them before you back into a campsite. So those are some of the questions gleaned from this prior month's uh, comments and questions coming through the YouTube channel and various videos. Pretty interesting stuff, I think. We're going to just hop over to the chat for a second, say good morning. I just want to uh, welcome everybody who's joined. Um, I see a couple questions already here. Um, let's put this one up here. Let's see here. Doug, thanks for joining, Doug. And Paul, it's nice to see you as well. And Zoe, thank you for joining, guys. Uh, any thoughts on going slightly over the 80% tow cap capacity rule? Great show. Thanks for doing it. Okay, so this is a really interesting question as far as how much can you kind of push it if you have like an SUV, for example, and you're the weight of your uh, tow vehicle gets up there and pushes the 80% capacity. I think you just got to be really careful, right? I mean, if you're comfortable uh, at that range, I think you're okay. But you, you need to drive it a little bit to feel how comfortable you are. I was pushing that when I had my 171 and my Honda Pilot. And my Pilot did okay, but it was kind of a C to C plus experience. I didn't like it too much. Eventually, I ended up getting a truck uh, to tow my R-Pod. So I think I can't give you a definitive answer, except lower is obviously better. Uh, you've got to just be careful there. I think one of the things that comes to mind uh, as far as towing in any situation isn't just how much you can pull, but how effectively can you stop, right? So you just got to be careful if you're putting too much weight on, say, a unibody frame Honda Pilot or something like that. Probably not the best idea to push it too much. Thanks, Doug, for the question. We got a question from Zoe as well. What bike rack do you recommend now, given that the bike rack you recommended is no longer manufactured? We have two to three bikes. And I, the one I recommended was the, um, the Bike Wing 2. And I can't remember the actual brand it was, but the Bike Wing 2, which I still use. And I actually used this last summer on a shorter trip. Now, I don't, use, I don't tote bikes on longer trips on the back of the R-Pod anymore, but I do for shorter trips. Like I went over to uh, Fort Custer recently a month or so ago and towed my two bikes on the bike wing. Now that's news to me as far as the bike wing no longer being manufactured, so I have to look into that. I didn't know that. Uh, and so in regard to that, I don't have any recommendation. And if you're talking about an R-Pod specifically, you gotta be very careful in any trailer really, 
as far as the weight you put on the back of any trailer if you're talking about a bike hitch. I'm probably going to look at, uh, at some point here in the next year or so, looking at another bike video and just uh, kind of going over that whole situation again. The one I did out on the channel has, I think, seven or eight ways you can tote your bikes. And the back of the trailer really is something you got to be cautious about, obviously, with the weight of your bike. So, sorry, I can't really answer that too much because I don't have another recommendation. I haven't looked into it lately. But thank you, Zoe. Uh, question from Jim. Welcome, Jim. We are here in Florida. Well, congratulations. Love Florida. When, I'm sorry. No, you're not in Florida. You said when, you, when I'm in Florida and I had the 171, do you know what temps were in the fridge? I'm seeing mid-40s in the fridge and mid-teens in the freezer. Are they normal? Um, that's a great question as far as refrigerator stuff, Jim. Really, you want your refrigerator in the low 40s at the high. So if you're in the mid-40s, that's probably a little bit high, and it's an issue of either you have too much heat beating on the outside of the refrigerator and you're fighting against that. And some people actually put small fans in the back portion where the refrigerator sits in your trailer to kind of keep it cooler. Remember, these absorption are absorption refrigerators unless you have a different model. And what they do is they operate a little differently than a compressor refrigerator like in your house. So mid-40s are, are not really, that's not a great temperature in my opinion. You want low 40s at the highest, maybe 41, 42. Uh, I think the FDA recommendation is 40 on the fridge and zero on the freezer. Now it's hard to get a RV refrigerator down to zero. So, you know, where you're at in the, I think you said in the mid-teens is probably okay. Obviously lower is better. At some point, you got to look at things, and I have a video out there on refrigerator stuff. Um, you got to look at things like, you know, when's the last time you defrosted? If it's fully defrosted and you're starting from scratch, you know, what temperature do you get? If you're out there a long time in humidity and you're seeing some frost build up, it may uh, not work as well. Uh, obviously, mid-40s, it's working, so I don't know that it's a service call, but if it stays up there, uh, your food just isn't going to last as long, so you may want to look into it, uh, some troubleshooting on that. So hopefully that helps a little bit, Jim. Sorry, not as de that definitive. Okay, we're going to go ahead and move on. Thanks again, everybody, for joining. We're going to go ahead and move on and jump into RV news. We've got a lot of RV news to cover and some really interesting things. So the RV news segment of the show is about getting up to speed on your latest RV news that may impact you. We look at various sources and try to boil down the news to you uh, for um, a few main items. So first up, and we've covered this on most of the live shows lately, the last during this year, is traditional forms of travel continue to be hit hard. TSA checkpoint numbers, you can see from the chart up, uh, are showing air travel is still recovering extremely slowly. The past four-week period, we saw 65.2 million people fly from uh, 2019 versus only 23.2 million in uh, 2020. That's only 35.7% of the last year's volume. Now, that's inching up over three uh, percentage points since last month. It was only at 32% last month. And so just be aware that air travel is recovering very slowly. And this isn't great news for air travel or entertainment that requires air travel like going to theme parks, and they're suffering as well. Meanwhile, RV sales remain robust. New and used inventory on RV traders has increased during October as manufacturers continue to recover production, and traditional camping season reaches its conclusion. So you can see from this chart that it's inching back up from its, you know, its high inventory rate in the May time frame, and it's just inching back up. So there's more, there's a few more trailers on lots, but not many. Uh, overall, RVIA reported September RV shipments continue to outpace the same month prior year. This is an interesting chart. You can just find this anytime you want to look at this date if you're interested on RVIA, which is the main uh, industry uh, source for RV information. You can see the gold bars are 2020, 
The blue bars are, are 2019, and you can see how production almost stopped in April, May, and then came back strongly. So there's still a lot of demand for uh, RVs being sold. Meanwhile, travel restrictions continue. The U.S., Canada, and Mexico have extended travel restrictions for non-essential travel on their shared borders until probably at least November 21. That's what it says right now. It's through November 21, but more than likely that's going to be extended. So unfortunately for our Canadian neighbors wanting to snowboard down to the U.S. or the southern U.S. this winter, it's looking kind of tough to do that. On the positive side, for those of you who may be looking to snag some last-minute campsites in nice places in the south, uh, those may open up as cancellations start to roll through. I think probably most people are still holding their cancellations are holding their campsites until they know for certain in the next month or two. You know, there's actually uh, more momentum on outdoor recreation as well. RVing continues to pick up steam as a viable option for travel for vacationing. We have a, a quote here from Karen Redfern of Go RVing. She recently uh, mentioned this before a congressional committee. Many Americans find RV camping one of the safest forms of travel. Modernizing campgrounds for Wi-Fi and electricity usage is essential for the many people who are now working remotely, along with students in schools that use virtual learning platforms. This is from RV News, that quote. I think Karen states an important trend in RV travel, one that facilitates living and working remotely. One recent development in this regard is a change to Verizon's data plans. You know, a new data option appeared in the choices for the data plans of my Jetpack uh, 8800L. We saw this new plan in early October and switched to it immediately, given it had double the amount of data, went from 15 gigabytes a month to 30 for just $10 more per month. Almost a no-brainer there. And you can find out more if you're interested, especially if you're doing going remotely. Uh, you can find out more on Verizon's website. We've used this quite a bit. I'll talk about that a little bit later, this Verizon Jetpack. Uh, another bit of news, Airstream, has made an important structural change to the flooring it uses in its travel trailers, moving from a plywood substructure to composite flooring. This significant change would ensure that water leaks won't ruin the substructure of the trailer. While plywood is more solid versus some of the styrofoam encased by Luan wood used in many trailers, including the R-Pods, it is still wood and eventually will rot with exposure to water over time. The latest change by Airstream is a huge deal in terms of adding to the potential longevity of the trailer. Hopefully, this will flow to other models in the Thor family. And you can find out more on the Airstream, uh, Airstream website. Okay, and a big piece of news. We have to say so long, unfortunately, to the R-Pod 179. On our last show in early October, we revealed the changes R-Pod made to the strong-selling 179 model. Most people and many of you on the, on the show today didn't like the change as much as the slightly larger refrigerator is offset by removing significant storage. But the big news coming on the heels of RPOD dropping the 191 model in September is that now the 179 model has been dropped, unfortunately. I have to admit this is a bit of a shock as they just started making the 2021 models with the recent changes noted. However, this seems to be in line with the overall strategy of eliminating the smaller models and focusing on the larger high margin trailers. This leaves RPOD with only one wet bath model, the uh, original here, the RPOD 171. Okay, on the flip side of this, Forest River has just introduced the RPOD 201. Uh, this is the second of their 25 foot travel trailers. The 202 was introduced this past summer 
with the promise of more of this size trailer to come. We have the floor plan of the new 201 here. First thing to notice is no slide out. This seems to remove only almost 200 pounds from the trailer, about 4379 versus 4574 unloaded weight for the 202. The 201 configuration moves the kitchen from the rear to the non-campsite side and adds a chair by the doorway if you're looking at this closely. The walk-through bathroom remains as does the short queen walk-around bed. We did a video, by the way, on the 202 this past summer, if you're interested, a pretty good review of that when it came out. The 201 looks more appealing in terms of no slide-out to deal with. So this is always interesting to me about having a trailer without a slide-out because it just makes it so much more convenient to, uh, to open up camp and set up and also when you leave. However, for 25-foot trailers, by the way, which there are plenty of in the market, the short queen is kind of a disappointment still. And the walk-through bathroom still has drawbacks in terms of moving through the trailer when the bathroom is in use. So here's my take. As an RPOD 179 owner, I'm saddened that Forest River has discontinued what was a best-selling and very practical model. The RPOD 179 had a great floor plan for those who like to cook inside or want a smaller trailer that can be lived in and worked from remotely. You know, I've, I've enjoyed mine very much, even with all the issues I've had to go through to get it dialed in. RPOD has made a strategic decision to go larger going forward, which will introduce the brand to a different customer. It will also require tow vehicles that are quite a bit larger from the customer. For me, unfortunately, it moves away from what I'm looking for in my next small trailer. And with both the Winnebago Hike coming out and the Jayco Jayfeather Micro coming out all in the 20-foot space, it means many will look elsewhere for an entry-level trailer. On the bright side, with Airstream moving to a composite floor, this makes two large Thor Industry branded trailers, both Airstream and, and Keystone, moving into significantly better water-resistant floor material. This bodes well for the industry and should begin to force better flooring into many other brands. Hopefully someday soon, we should see a travel trailer with both composite floors and Asdale walls, making the structure fairly impermeable to water issues. So I'm going to hop over to the chat for just a second and, and see if we have any other questions or comments. By the way, again, thank you everybody for joining. Paul, uh, Paul, thanks for joining again. FYI, we installed a Stromberg Carlson bike bunk on our 179 this past season and worked great. Totally recommend it for an R-Pod if you're not using weight distribution hitch. Good point, Paul. Uh, Stromberg Carlson sits on the front tongue and you have to you know, put your bikes up on it, but it isn't on the back of the trailer. So it, it takes the weight off of the back bumper, which is kind of uh, the issue that most people come up with causing a lot of balance and damage to that, uh, the back bumper. I guess, Paul, and you have to chime in on this, the, the big negative to me is actually hoisting the bikes way up to get it on the, uh, the bike hitch or, and taking them down when you get where you're wanting to going. But other than that, obviously on the tongue, it adds tongue weight a bit, so you gotta be cautious of that, but I think it's probably a better place in the back bumper if your bikes are heavy. So thanks for that good point. And thanks for uh, joining in. Jason, good to see you as well. Uh, Jason says the small R-Pods are way out, I think. Love the 180. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying, I agree with you. You know, the main reason I went to R-Pod as an entry-level trailer is because I like the small size. If you think of a 20-foot trailer, you can get into almost anywhere. National parks, state parks, small spots. Once you get start, starting to get bigger, it makes it uh, more difficult to find places to go. The 180 is a great model. And I think at this point, they've kept the 180. They've kept the 189 and 190. Hopefully they won't ax the 180. 
or the 171. So they're still entry-level smaller trailers, but unfortunately the 179 is a very, was a very popular high-selling model for years, and it just kind of baffles me a little bit that they got rid of it. But it's a decision that companies make, and it's, they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're able to do that and change the market the way they want to in that regard. Okay, so let's keep going on. And the next thing I want to just mention here, and this is new, brand new, is we just want to introduce JohnMarucci.com, a brand new website we just stood up here. It's a new resource for your RV travel information. We have a significant number of blog articles on the site already to help you dive deeper into various RV issues. You can easily search the site for the topic you're interested in. And remember to bookmark the site and check back regularly for fresh content because we plan on updating things uh, going forward. I think you'll find the site a great resource as you go forward and, and need information. So just remember that JohnMarucci.com is out and open now. All right, we're going to move on to our main topic here in Newbie Corner. Now remember, Newbie Corner is all about helping people just getting started. And we're going to look at travel planning basics. We have a travel planning video out on the YouTube channel you know, if you're interested. Uh, Off-season, by the way, is a great time to dig into travel planning. And with more and more people choosing RVs for their primary mode of vacationing, it's vital to understand how and when to do travel planning. Recently, I've watched several of my favorite full-time RVers on YouTube struggle to find campground space, mainly due to lack of planning. Maybe in prior years, people could just wing it, when traveling by RV, but now the landscape has changed with the recent surge of new RVers. For example, if you want to explore Michigan next summer, you need to start planning now, given the six-month lead time for state parks. So let's look at some benefits of planning your RV travel. First of all, when you plan ahead, you're going to end up getting the best locations. You just won't get into the best campgrounds without planning. It's just an unfortunate truth. This is true more now than ever. It's always been tough to get the best places. Now it's pretty much impossible without planning. This includes places like national and state parks and the best campsites within those campgrounds. Florida state parks have some sites with full hookups, for example. But you rarely land a full hookup site without booking the 11 months ahead of time that you need to. Next, if you plan ahead, you have the security of knowing you have a place reserved. This has been important to me given prior work commitments. If you have to be back online or at a certain place by a certain time, having planned out your travel really makes sense. Now, you can also manage costs better if you plan your travel. It takes some work, but with planning, you can limit unexpected expenses while on the road. Generally, places like state parks and national parks are less expensive to stay at versus the private campgrounds you may just have to use while you're winging it. So this kind of cost can add up quickly during a longer trip. You know, another benefit of planning is that you can calculate accurate distances between stops. This is an important planning benefit and safety concern, by the way. I like to limit the maximum distance I tow in a day to no more than 400 miles, and that's really what I'm calling max, no more than that. Less is actually much better. Given stops along the way and lower average towing speeds, 400 miles makes for a very long and sometimes tedious travel day. Throw in any bad traffic, and your day towing can really stretch out. With planning, you can find places along the way that limit the amount of driving you do each day. This makes for a safer and more enjoyable overall experience. So for the beginner, here's a few planning tips I want to leave you with. First of all, know your lead times. Understanding your booking window and where you plan to go is likely the most important thing in planning. If I want to visit Kodachrome Basin State Park in Utah, for example, 
I better be on the Reserve America site exactly four months ahead of time of that date to book. Otherwise, I'll probably miss out on getting the site I want. If it's Michigan State Parks, I need to be ready to book six months out. For Florida State Parks, you need to be ready a whopping 11 months ahead of time. So that's a lot of lead time to think about what you're going to do. The point here is that each state park has a different booking window. And you'll never plan well unless you understand these booking windows. The next tip is enjoy the journey. If you're planning a big trip to somewhere great in a destination far away, don't only focus on the destination. If you've always wanted to hit the amazing Utah National Parks, like Zion and Bryce, for example, and you've been able to line up space through good planning, remember to make time to stop along the way. If you're traveling in from the East Country, there are dozens of great stops along the way you may not uh, even thought about. Places like Carlsbad Canyon from the South, Rocky Mountain National Park to the East, maybe going through South Dakota and the great parks along the way up there. The point here is that you may find a favorite spot along the way if you make room in your plans to try some new stops. Try not to be too focused only on the final destination and miss the potential incredible benefits along the way. The next main tip is understand the seasons. If you're new to planning, know when to go is like, uh, likely the one important thing that really understand. This applies not only to crowds, but also things like weather and even bugs. You know, bugs can make a trip a near total loss, so be aware. So we have a video on the channel of a trip done a couple years ago to Michigan's Upper Peninsula in July, if you want a, a taste of what I'm talking about. The mosquitoes were very invasive and made it difficult to hike, and you see by this horrible picture. That was like me being outside about a minute, by the way. Just got pinged that quickly. So remember, you know, to research the places you're going and when the best times would be to visit. And finally here, as far as tips, use great planning tools. You know, they're great trip planning tools to be aware of. My favorite still is Google Maps. This allows calcul for calculating distances between stops and finding points of interest along the way. So you can see here from this map that you have, you know, City of Rock State Park going to Wins Winslow, Arizona, and it tells you exactly how many miles, the 294 miles. And don't, don't be uh, uh, tricked by the number of hours here. That's at the speed limit of the road. It's probably gonna be a lot longer than that. So make sure you be aware of that when you're using Google Maps. Look at the miles. I usually take the miles and divide by 50 miles an hour on average if I'm going about 60 to 62 in my trailer with some stops to get a real time. But the nice thing about Google Maps is you can segment your trip out like this and figure how long you want to go and where you want to stop. So this allows for calculating distances between stops, finding points of interest along the way, and quick access to reviews even. You know, I use Google Maps ex extensively when trip planning for the above reasons. One feature I enjoy with Google Maps is the nearby feature. <clears throat> Once you find a location to overnight, for example, you can easily search that area for specific interests that are nearby. If you're into museums, for example, you can search just for those nearby where you stopped. Uh, there are other great websites and apps for planning in terms of campground reviews. Probably my favorite is Campendium.com. It certainly stands out in this regard. Their user-based reviews add significant detail around things like bandwidth for working, amenities that are available, and even recent pricing from those who've done reviews. You know, I also use extensively the AllStays app while on the road. I think the ability the app provides to filter to things like truck stops, rest stops, propane refill locations, and public dump stations near where you're at makes the app really stand out. Once you find the place you want to head to, you can then send the location to Google Maps 
on your smartphone. Now, just as an aside here really quick, I use this primarily when I'm traveling, not as much for planning. The app also has campground reviews, but you know, as far as campground reviews, I found these kind of scant at times. Okay, so that covers the, the newbie corner. That covers our uh, trip planning tips. Hopefully that's very helpful. There's a lot of good things in there, especially if you're just getting started with travel planning. The main thing I want to leave you with is if you're thinking about going to Florida, say next winter, you got to start thinking about uh, trip planning, you know, coming up here in January, February for the, pri for the next year. If you want to go up to Michigan and hit the amazing uh, parks along Lake Michigan, state parks, you guys think about doing that pretty soon here to get six months out. Okay, let's take a quick look and of any, if we have any further questions. And I think, um, let's see, Paul, okay, let's see, we have a we have thing. Can't find off the wall sightseeing. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm covering that one. And um, let's see, Paul also, I see Paul put one up here. Uh, John, John, good point about uh, host, hoisting the bikes up. We use a tray style bike rack versus hanging style. The lower tray style makes it easier to hoist them. That's a great idea. So if you're going to use that Car uh, Stromberg Carlson, that's a great point, Paul, to use that. Otherwise, it gets pretty much above your head and makes it difficult to uh, deal with. Okay, let's hop over to the spotlight section. The spotlight segment of the show is all about highlighting a specific resource so that we become more informed. Before we look at our spotlight item, just a reminder that up next is our open Q&A. So feel free to begin to queue up any questions you may have right now. Just remember to put question in front of it so we can see it easily. Our spotlight today is on the Verizon Jetpack 8800L. We have this out on the Amazon uh, site. This is the one that I've used, the specific model I've used for almost two years and can say it's been an outstanding as a, a mobile hotspot. The reason why we picked this up is that my phone is on AT&T and we wanted to have access to Verizon's network while traveling. And this would ensure we could use whichever has the best bandwidth where we're located. The antenna on this uh, mobile hotspot unit is strong and it does well to pull in a workable signal on the Verizon network if there's one anywhere near you. And you may have seen us pull these bandwidth numbers in recent campsite review videos. And again, we put a link to this product in the description of the live show below and it's also on the Amazon storefront, John Marucci Amazon storefront. So with that, let's go ahead and open up for open Q&A where we can, uh, anyone can ask any RV-related question. It doesn't have to be on the topic today. A planning can be anything at all. So we're going to hop over to the open Q&A here. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, can, I, I think I'm, I'm just trying to understand this question. Can find off-the-wall, can find um, off-the-wall sightseeing. I, I'm not sure in context what that is. Uh, so if you want to just clarify what, what you're talking about there, I'll gladly try and cover it. And I think there is a there is a question there at, at the bottom here. Let me just click on the DOB here. One second. I'm just getting to it, guys. Give me a thing. The question the Jetpack package got before the 2019, don't you have unlimited data? Oh, that's a good point. So the Jetpack does have unlimited data. Now they're both unlimited. I don't like that they use unlimited because it's throttled after a certain point. So what I had, the $79 one was 15 gigabytes unlimited. And then um, at full bandwidth, and then after that, they throttle you down to 640 uh, KPS. The 30 gigabytes is the same thing if you look at the language. Basically, but you're paying only $10 more for double the gigabytes. So you can go up to 30 at full 
bandwidth, and then they do start uh, throttling it after that. So that's, hopefully that answers that question there. Uh, let's see, other questions. Got a question here from Doug. Thoughts on solar packages? Do you use them at all? Now, I, I don't do much. I haven't done much um, boondocking, Doug, so I haven't gotten to solar packages at all. There's a lot of places you can you can follow and search along as far as uh, RVers using solar. If you're into boondocking specifically and want solar, just remember it's probably not just solar you need to deal with. You probably also need to look at upgraded batteries like lithium, and then you're also looking at an inverter to put on so you can use some of your plugs on battery. Now, for me, just I'll just give you my what I think about it as far as solar. If I, on my R-Pod or even my Keystone Bullet, I probably wouldn't spend the money to put solar on the roof right away. I want to see how it goes first. I would probably get something like a ZAMP uh, solar suitcase packet, maybe a 140 to 200 watt that I can plug right in and charge my batteries up. The thing I like about the portable suitcases is, what if you got a campsite that you're parked under tree limbs and it blocks a lot of the sunlight, where you're just not going to get the same kind of, kind of power from the sun charging, you know, going through your solar panels and charging your battery. If you have a suitcase model, you can obviously move that away and angle it to where the sun is and probably get better uh, sunlight and uh, proficiency out of that out of that solar unit. So if I were to just start using it, I'd probably get a, a suitcase, like a ZAMP suitcase, plug it into my iPod, and then upgrade my batteries so I can have more battery um, power when I'm boondocking. So there's my two cents on it. I haven't experimented with it, so I really am not an expert on it and can't really talk to it too much. Before I would go and spend a bunch of money about putting solar panels on my, on my the top of my uh, roof of either of my trailers, I'd probably try that first. Hopefully that helps. Let's see, <clears throat> other questions. Um, looks like Douglas, clicking this on just a second. Recommendations for a generator. That's another good question. Now this gets in the whole play, uh, Douglas, as far as um, what do you what do you need to do with the generator? Are you planning on trying to run your air conditioner with the generator? Because if you are, one of two things has to happen. You either have to get a generator that's like 3,000 watts or higher to run your generator, run your air conditioner. Or you can use a medium-sized generator like a Honda 2200i, but you have to get a, a soft start applied to your AC unit because the smaller generator won't kick up the power for starting the air conditioner. But with a soft start, it'll actually keep the, the draw down when it kicks on and you can use a smaller generator. This is, again, a situation. I actually looked into it this summer. I didn't pull the trigger on it, but I did some research on this. If I were to do it, I would get the smaller, probably Honda generator, 2200i, and have a soft start on my air conditioner and be able to run that. And the benefits of that is you have a much lighter uh, generator. You also have something you can put like under the tanno cover of your truck. It's not monstrous. So that's the probably the decision, uh, that's the direction I would go. But again, it's, it's really variable on what you want to do with it. If you want to try to run everything in your trailer at the same time, probably that's not going to work and need a more hefty generator. Hopefully that helps a little bit. I'm partial to Hondas. I, I've got a Honda lawnmower that's lasted 22 years. The motor's incredible. Got a Honda pressure washer. So as far as small engines, I think Honda makes probably the best out there. And their generators are extremely highly rated for longevity. So just be aware of that. Okay, let's look at some more questions. Scott, roadside, roadside assistance. I have a classic, a class C recommendations advice. You know, that's a great question as well. Um, there's various places. I know Good Sam has one. They're, you know, average rated. I've heard good and bad things about the Good Sam roadside assistance. The other thing I would recommend is, you know, talk to your insurance agent, find out if they have something. If you have like State Farm, maybe they have a, an RV package 
things like that. Uh, generally, what I would do if I'm looking for an extended roadside assistance package, I'd probably just do the research on Google, find a, a video or a blog that says, you know, five or 10 best roadside assistance packages, do my research, come to a conclusion, maybe watch a couple videos and just do the research and go through it. I haven't done that, so I can't speak to it too, uh, too completely though. But thank you for the question. Okay. Um, uh, DOB again, thinking before they quit offering the unlimited data package uh, before my 2019, I thought they did not control throttling. Well, that's if you have it, and that's a good point. If what you're saying is you have an old grandfathered plan where they don't control or don't throttle, you probably want to stick with that because if you go onto their site and want to upgrade your plan, your data plan, that won't be available. And once you get out of that, you're not going back. You're going to have to go to these throttled, un, quote unquote, unlimited plans that are throttled. So if you have one or anyone, on the show has a data plan that's truly unlimited where you don't get throttled. Those are like gold, so don't don't uh, ditch those easily. And you can get probably a 8800L or one of these mobile hotspots and tie that to your account and maybe use that unlimited. So those are, if that's what you have, you may want to think about getting rid of that more than, you know, quickly, don't get rid of that easily. Okay, Paul, question. Are there any Michigan State Parks that you recommend for late fall camping? Yeah, I mean, most of them. Uh, state parks, I, I did a bunch of late fall camping this year, uh, at different places. Uh, if you want to stay and Paul, I think you're coming from South of Michigan, just South of Michigan around here in the Midwest, if I remember. Uh, but basically if you want to, if you don't want to go too far North in Michigan, I mean, fall camping, you can go to places like Fort Custer, which probably isn't too far away. Yankee Springs is up the road toward Grand Rapids. If you want to go toward the lake, if you can get into Ludington, that's a beautiful place. One of my favorite camp, uh, state parks anywhere is Ludington State Park. But if you hit it right, say the first or second week of October, you get a lot of colors. Uh, one of the detriments I found this time, I went in mid-October, is we had a ton of leaf fall. And so it was a huge amount of cleanup, like getting stuff off my slide and then a bunch of leaves blowing off while I'm dry, driving. So just be aware you're going to have, a, you know, basically the campsite was covered with leaves. Uh, and that could be an issue if, you know, there's dog droppings under there from the prior campsite owner, which is something I won't get into too much, but basically you, you just got to be aware of some of the fall things. It's beautiful. And I have some drone footage of going up and showing the fall colors. Amazing. So it's a lot of fun, but I think any of the state parks in Michigan and be beautiful, just time it for the first or second week in October and you'll hit the colors really well. You have to need to time it early. If you want to go farther North, obviously, if you go to the upper peninsula, probably late September, first week in October. Great question. Uh, Tim, good to see you, Tim. Uh, love our solar suitcase that tops off with our twin six volt batteries. That's a great point. I talked about solar suitcases a few minutes ago and you can do that if you don't want to go lithium, because if you don't know, lithium batteries are extremely good, but they're very expensive. You may be spending, you know, close to eight, 900 bucks for one lithium battery. And here, Tim has two twin volt, uh, a twin six volt batteries, two batteries uh, in series. And he uses a, a solar suitcase, probably, Tim, if I'm not mistaken, probably plug it into the side or solar on the side or something like that. And then you, that way you can angle your suitcase where you want it and it keeps your batteries charged. So great point. Thanks for, thanks for uh, piping in there, Tim. Okay, uh, DOB again, what do you think about the soft start? I think the soft start, if you're going to use a small generator, is pretty essential unless you don't want to use your AC. So the soft start is a pretty easy install. And before I go there, by the way, some of the air conditioning units are already kind of pre-wired with that. The air conditioning unit in my uh, Keystone Bullet kind of has a soft start built in. So some of the later air conditioners, you don't even need a soft start added because they tend to have some of that technology built in. I can use my uh, air conditioner pretty easily on my Keystone Bullet, even on 15 amp plug-in. It's just not a problem. 
even that because it keeps the the draw down when it's starting up. So if you have a big old Dometic one like on the R pods, it's probably you're not probably not going to be able to do that. So you're going to need to add a soft start. It's not hard at all. And by the way, if you want more about this, all you have to do is go to the R pod owners forum. It's the old school forum. There's some guys on there who are outstanding as far as their knowledge of the trailers. And uh, there's there's blog material and, and article material about adding a soft start. And it's not too difficult to do. All you got to do is, is you have to get up there and you got to put it in, but their instructions aren't too difficult. So I think if you want to uh, use a smaller generator, it's pretty much uh, a requirement. Like a, less than a 3,000 watt generator, you're going to need some sort of soft start if you want to use your AC. Now, if you don't want to use your AC, you're not going in the heat of summer, then I don't know that it's worth the time. Okay, uh, another question does, let's see here, uh, Jason had one here. Oh, again, DOB. Does the SoftSmart uh, void the warranty of the AC of new trailer? I don't know that. I'm not sure about that. I think you'd have to research that. Uh, if it's within the first year of the trailer, I'd probably just call my dealer and see what they think, what they tell you about that. If you bought it from a dealer and it's within the warranty period, it's a new trailer, uh, find out about that before you go and do it. Um, I don't think it's probably going to be a big deal, although, you know, they can be sticky on warranty issues and, and it may, may be sticky in that regard. So if something happens to your AC, you probably won't uh, won't be able to hold that up and say, you need to replace my air conditioner if you did some modification to it. So I'd call my dealer and find out. Okay, Jason, question, what do you think about RV parks that have standby mechanisms if you have issues? I'm sorry, let me, let me read that again. What do you think about RV parks that have standby mechanics if you have issues, if out of warranty? Boy, that's the first time I've heard of having a standby mechanic at an RV park. What I do know is that there's mobile RV techs that'll come pretty much anywhere. You can find out online. If you don't want to go to a dealer uh, to get a repair done out of warranty, uh, you know, you can look this up. This is a real resource. I know around here where I live in Southwest Michigan, there's people around here who are traveling basically RV techs who will come to your house and work on your RV if it's something beyond your ken. So it's, it's interesting. That's a good point. Uh, Jason, if you have something like that and you have a problem on the road, you know, you can, and they, there actually is a mechanic there is willing to work on it. Obviously they need to be skilled. And if not, I would do some research online to find if there's a mobile tech somewhere to uh, work on your trailer. If it's parked in an RV park and you know, you need it fixed before you go to the next place. Yeah. So good question. Very good question on that. Uh, Tim, uh, also, the suitcase is 100 watt. Okay, that's a good point. I think you, if it's the Zamps, I haven't researched a bunch of different ones, Tim, but the Zamps, I know they have different watt ratings from like 60 to 80 all the way up to 200 plus. So you got to just decide, um, you know, what kind of size you want. Okay, let's just look. Uh, one other question here. Uh, using a 2300 watt peak generator with a 30, uh, 13,500 uh, BTU air conditioner on my RPOD 179. No problem. That's a great, uh, great point, Jim. And thank you for piping in there. So what you're saying here is that probably you're not running anything else like the convection oven, but you're able to handle the uh, 1300 BTU popping on and doing the big draw with just a 2300 watt peak generator. Now, interestingly, Jim, I've seen various comments on various forums as far as this of whether Really, uh, uh, that, you know, a 2000 or 2200 will handle that. Some people say it does. Some people have bad experiences. And this is good news. Um, kind of you got to try this and see if it'll work. Probably you don't want to run this and a bunch of other stuff at the same time. But if you need to jack up your AC while it's really hot, that's a good idea. Uh, to me, the best, I, you know, the smaller generator is better. Whatever I can get by with smaller would work for me. So that's good news if a 2300 will work on that. 
Okay. You know, we're going to need to wrap it up right now. And I appreciate everybody. We're, we're pushing toward the, the uh, you know, quarter of, and we're going to need to close up here. So thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, good interaction, good questions. Uh, that's going to close it up for today. Appreciate it, everybody. Thanks for joining the live show, and thanks for watching those who are watching the YouTube replay. If you haven't already subscribed, we'd love to have you, you know, join the On the Road team. You can also join us on Instagram and Twitter at John Marucci and follow us on Facebook now, John Marucci on the Road. Also, don't forget that you can get the very latest on our new website, JohnMarucci.com. Thanks again for joining the show today. This is John Marucci. Stay safe and so long for now.